This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to the Untamed Ethos podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Wilson. Did you know that just three companies control almost 80% of the global ETF market? ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. Whether it's big government, large corporations, or influential index fund companies, the common thread for today's episode is the centralization of power and how that affects you. How are powerful fund companies influencing your life and what can you do about it? I'll also talk about how some trending topics you need to know fit into this bigger narrative. For example, I'll talk about Oliver Anthony Music's reaction to the establishment. He's the country music guy that uh, just came out of nowhere a few months ago singing a recording um, that was filmed in front of his property, I believe, in Virginia. Guy with a big red beard. And I'll give my personal perspective and interpretation of his message from my viewpoint. As some of you know, I grew up very modestly in rural Alabama in an area with many similarities to where Anthony is located. I'll also talk about how our understanding of terms like conservative and liberal have changed and why this is important. Lastly, we'll have some fun. I'll talk to you about some of the biggest stories in college football for the 2023 season, so you'll be ready for those football conversations at work. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, best thing you can do is just forward it to a friend. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like and subscribe as well. Let's get started. Now, when too much power is concentrated in one place, it raises questions about accountability, transparency, the potential for misuse. In other words, big firms you never think about can be controlling your life. First, let's define our terms. An index fund is an investment vehicle that holds a portfolio of various stocks. Now, an index fund can be structured as either a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, also known as an ETF. But for simplicity, I'm just going to refer to them as index funds. The index fund is aimed at mimicking the performance of a financial market index. Uh, the S&P 500 is the most well-known financial um, index. It's uh, typically regarded as the biggest 500 or so stocks in the United States by market capitalization, which means how big is the company. On the other hand, a large corporation is a business entity with many divisions, uh, subsidiaries often operating in sometimes diverse sectors. So these index funds own a collection of stocks or other investments. So you can buy an index fund that owns these individual stocks. Now, these stocks come with them is the right to vote. Now, as I mentioned before, the ETF market, right? Just three companies control almost 80% of the global ETF market. Those three companies are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And uh, 
and, and these companies have done some good things for investors. There's no question about that, that there's been good from this, you know, over many years, these are some of the firms that have helped democratize uh, the investment industry, lower fees across the board. They're not solely responsible for this, but, you know, discount brokers and other places like that have really brought down fees dramatically in the industry. But these three firms alone, just in these funds manage about $15 trillion dollars that they control. That's about three quarters for perspective, that 15 trillion is about three quarters of the size of the United States economy, three companies controlling that. Now together, three, these three companies alone are the largest owner. If you combine their resources, those three together are the largest owner in 88% of S and P 500 companies. One study suggests that by 2038, a mere 15 years away, they could control up to 41% of SP 500 votes and up to 37% of Russell 3000 votes. Now, no sense in taking my word for it. Um, I'm going to read you just a bit of a, the testimony before the hearing on competition and consumer protection from the federal trade. Um, on December 6th of 2018, this is S this is the former SEC commissioner, Robert J. Jackson, Jr. talking. And by the way, Robert J. Jackson, uh, was unanimously confirmed to, to this position by the Senate. So you can probably guess he's a rather uncontroversial un figure, extremely well-educated, went to UPenn, uh, did a undergrad, I believe in public policy or philosophy and finance, did an MBA at Wharton School of Business, one of the top MBA programs in the nation, uh, went to Harvard, did a master's in public policy, did his JD there. He's, uh, he's a, uh, professor at uh, New York University, NYU, very highly regarded guy. And this is what he said, quote, a few large institutions today vote millions of American families money in corporate elections that will help decide our economic future. I'm gonna read that again, quote, and again, this is Robert J. Jackson Jr., the former SEC commissioner said, quote, a few large institutions today vote millions of American families money in corporate elections that will help decide our economic future, end quote. Dr. John Coates of Harvard, in his paper, The Future of Corporate Government, Part One, The Problem of the Twelve. Well, first off, what is he talking about the problem of the Twelve before I, before I talk about what he says? Well, when he says the problem of the, of the Twelve, he's talking about the likelihood that in the near future, roughly 12, 12, right? Same, that's a, that's a dozen, right? 12 individuals will have practical power over the majority of US public companies. He called that a quote, urgent corporate government challenge. And he is very well known and highly respected, Dr. John Coates of Harvard in, in um, think, all issues of corporate governance. Now, this is a couple of years ago. I believe he wrote this in 2018 or 19. Um, he said back then when he was sounding the alarm about these big three, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, he was talking about how 25% of the S&P 500 companies, they vote 22% of Russell 3000. Obviously you heard me say a few minutes ago, it's already above that and projected to be much closer to double that in the next 15 years. Coates also noted that because a lot of people will say, well, you know, but they hold these things across multiple funds. It's not all in one fund. And Coates says, you know, although a fund, you know, a fund complexes shares are held across different funds, the implications for voting and engagement are functionally 
irrelevant. He also notes that from 2012 to 2018, these three companies, they only voted against corporate compensation proposals. Pause. Why am I bringing up corporate compensation proposals? Well, this is one of the big talking points of the left and Democrats is, you know, um, CEOs get paid so much money. Okay. Or they paid too much money or whatever those, the stats that they say of, you know, X number of times the average worker, things like that. Now, Understand these three companies, how often would you guess they voted against corporate compensation proposals? Average 2% for one of them, 2.9% for the other one and 4.4% for the other. So between two and four and a half percent of the time, depending on which one of these companies, they're actually voting against corporate compensation proposals. He says for the most valuable public company in the world, this is a coach talking quote for the most valuable public company in the world, three individuals can in principle swing the vote of 17% of its shares. That's huge. Generally a significant fraction of shareholders don't even vote, even if it's in contested battles. So when you hear things like, well, that's not hundred, that's not over 50%. You can't think that way, right? Seen in business, for example, they reported that BlackRock has at least 5% stake, at least 5% in 97.5% of the S&P 500. You may say, Joshua, why do I care about 5%? That's, that's one out of 20 shares. Okay, hold on a second. It's very, it's widely accepted, 5% as an important threshold for many reasons. It's, it's so highly regarded as important threshold that anyone who buys 5% or more of a company's stock must file a Schedule 13D with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, disclosing their ownership and intentions. Owning 5% or more gives the shareholder considerable say in corporate governance, including votes on mergers, acquisitions, and very importantly, the election of board members. In other words, the people that are making the decisions. Where do they come from? What are their influences? What are they interested in getting done? So you're thinking in terms of if you've got control of these shares, then you've got just three companies. If you're controlling this amount of shares, just three companies, then you can, then you have the ability to get people, board members on and influence them to, to, to have those companies act the way that you want them to act, to put in policies that you want them to have that, hey, you may say, well, the shareholders don't, don't like that and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna boycott that company. Okay, they got a much bigger agenda than just the profits for one individual company. And that's what's, what's, what's hard to understand is, well, it, I'm not saying that you know, people shouldn't boycott individual firms. What I am saying is there are people with much bigger agendas than a couple of firms. And you know, a, a little bit of profits on this one firm that's a tiny piece of their portfolio and another firm's gonna benefit, it doesn't matter. If you own two beer companies and one of them uh, loses money and that money flows to another beer company that you own, yeah, one of the beer companies suffers, but one of your other portfolio companies doing just fine because they benefit from it, right? So it would be the same thing if when I grew up in my hometown, uh, we had two Piggly Wiggly grocery stores on the different ends of, of the town and it was owned by the same person. And so as long as you were shopping at Piggly Wiggly, if you got mad at this one because they didn't have a, because they didn't have a specific product, you can go to the other side of town, it's the same owner, right? 
I learned recently of a guy that owns both a, a farmer's and an Allstate um, insurance. Well, you know, and they're on literally on different street corners. So it doesn't really matter if it, to him if you take your business away from Allstate and go over here to farmers because he owns both of them, right? Next thing is activist investing. A 5% stake is often enough to allow an investor to push for changes within the company. That's including strategic direction, financial allocation, even changes in management. Now, acquiring a 5% stake is often newsworthy. It can influence the stock's price, either positively or negatively, depending on the market's perception of the investor's intentions. People really key on that 5%. And of course, you know they've got 5% and almost 98% of companies. So when you're owning a large percentage of the company's shares, you could impact the stock's liquidity, making it more challenging to buy or sell large quantities, so on and so forth. Also, a 5% stake can be a stepping stone to acquiring more shares, possibly leading to a takeover bid. Now, all of these things don't matter for them. I'm just, I'm just emphasizing the importance of that 5% um, level and almost 98% of companies that have at least 5% in it. So a, a significant ownership stake can facilitate you know, different kinds of strategic partnerships and alliances. And ultimately that 5% ownership stake is a publicly traded company is a critical threshold that triggers regulatory disclosures, offers significant influence and can impact a company's stock price and strategic, especially important, their strategic in, um, direction. So now everything I just said is, is like publicly available information. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And this is what, this is what annoys me at times um, when, I, when I think about these things is people will say, yeah, but there's this and but there's this and you know, here's the laws and here's, here's you got to do this, this. Okay, uh, what I just talked to you about was the formal pressure that they can put on. What about informal pressure? I mean, everything doesn't happen in a boardroom. Right. There, there are private conversations. There are people that if you own a big portion of their uh, of their of their company and you're the one in charge of putting the board members in that boardroom. If you're a CEO, think of it this way. You're a CEO of a major company and you've got these three companies that have an agenda. And if you want to understand their agenda, just go Google Larry Fink from BlackRock and see some of the many things that he said uh, about global agendas and social agendas and the things that he pushes. So if you've got these firms and you've got a CEO that's just trying to make money, for example, and you've got these folks saying, well, if you don't do what we say, we can get new people on the board. We can get you fired. We can make this difficult for you. So you've got, they're able to put pressure on a lot of companies. Now, in a democratic society, the government's supposed to be kept in check by the people and the judiciary. But what about big companies and index funds? Who's keeping them in check? This is where regulatory bodies and interestingly, public opinion can come into play. And public opinion is where you and I come into play. Social media campaigns, consumer choices, consumer choices, the choices that you make, taking your money from here to there, buying this product instead of this product, Consumer choices and even podcasts like this one can influence how these entities operate if you band together. So the ultimate question, as far as I can see it, is who controls the controllers? Now, whether it's government officials, corporate CEOs, index fund managers, the issue of control is a pretty complex web. And as we all become more interconnected, the lines between those things blur 
and it makes it even more of a critical topic to keep discussing. Now, in conventional wisdom, if you're the sole owner of a large corporation, you're in the driver's seat. You have the ultimate say in everything from appointing the board of directors, setting the company's overall strategy. The same perception really exists for index funds. The managers seem to have full control over their investment decisions. But the reality is that the truth is more nuanced. Even if you're a sole owner of a massive corporation, which you know few people are, you can't possibly oversee every single decision. There's just too many variables and too many layers of management. That's known as agency costs, which refers to the limitations of being able to control every aspect of a large organization. That's why this is important. There's many parallels between being a sole owner of a business and an index fund manager, because index fund managers face the same dilemma. They can't micromanage every company they invest in. Instead, they focus on broader governance issues like CEO selection, overarching strategy, hiring policy, the political persuasions and the social policies that they want to push for much bigger agendas that go so much bigger than this individual company, but go to the country level and even global level. So the challenges they face are pretty similar. Now, here's probably where it gets interesting. While a sole owner's control is generally accepted as legitimate because they own the company. So you own the company. So your control is accepted as legitimate because you own the company. The same can't be said for index funds because they wield significant influence, but they don't actually own the companies in their portfolio in a traditional sense. Remember, they're share classes, they, the manager of these share classes. So some people will misquote this and say, I've heard people say, well, you know, BlackRock owns 98% or 100% or 80% or I see all these random numbers thrown out. They own you know, 60% of the companies or they own 25%. No, they don't own in a traditional sense. If they actually owned, then their control would be legitimate. But again, they don't really own them. They control the voting and they control the fact that even when they're not controlling the voting, this is another mistake people make is they think some portion of that, they allow investors to, 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 to direct the votes. Yeah, that's true but most of those still hire them to do it. But anyway, is even without the votes, they still have control because of what goes on behind closed doors. You just can't be that big and powerful and tell me that your control is limited to what's on paper, right? As you have different ways of getting things done. So there's a big difference. When you own a company, people think it's okay for you to be in charge because it's your company. But with index funds, it's not so clear. They have a lot of power but they don't own the companies they invest in. So some people wonder if they have too much influence. And that again is what leads us to what Coates called the problem of 12, which is unique to index funds. Unlike uh, a sole owner, index funds can control a large portion of the market and their decisions can have wide reaching impacts. Yes, they don't have the same level of accountability, which can be a concern. Now, you know, this, this leads me in to thinking about culture and, you know, how culture is being influenced by these things and how people are, are, are speaking out. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a, a man in Virginia. This is a guy with a red beard, uh, Oliver Anthony Music. I think that his actual name is Christopher, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Oliver Anthony Music. He named his music after his grandfather, Oliver. 
Um, but he wrote this song. And if you haven't heard this song, you have to go listen to it. The performance is absolutely amazing. I love this kind of music. Uh, I play guitar. I like to sing. And I like the, the very stripped down, basic acoustic music. And the words spoke to me a lot. But you got to go look at this, look this up if you haven't heard it and read the lyrics as well. It's called Rich Men North of Richmond. Obviously, it's referring to um, the government, right? Now, when he released this song, and you got to go read the lyrics, I'll read a few of them to you, to you here. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay, of course, he said the real world, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home, and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame that the world's what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you, which I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men north of Richmond, Lord, they just want to have total control. Want to know what you think, want to know what you do. And they don't think you know, but I know that you do because your dollar eight SHIT and it's taxed to no end because the rich men north of Richmond and then he says, I wish politicians would look out for miners, um, like in the mountains of coal, not just minors, miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the obese milking welfare. God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. And then he goes on with the song. So you can you can listen to the rest of it, but that's kind of the, the gist of most of the song. You know, the left-wing media instantly hated this song, slammed it. And of course, the the um, you know, anything that's hated by the left is going to be loved by the right. We're very polarized. And so the right-wing media grabbed it up. And then, of course, it was taken by the GOP. In the GOP primary, it was played. That caused uh, Oliver Anthony Music to get online and basically say, hey, um, that song is not for the GOP. I am, this is not just about Biden. This is about you guys on stage too. And what he basically said was, I'm right down the middle. You know, I am, I am not pro-GOP. You guys aren't my people. You guys don't represent me. This is not pro-GOP. This is anti-establishment. Now, this made uh, a lot of folks angry, and then a lot of folks started saying he was left-wing and pro-Biden. The guy's been very clear that he's right in the middle. Now, what I want to talk about is how I understand this, because you know I grew up in rural Alabama, um, and experiencing widespread poverty. Um, most people work in factories. There's the mobile home industry is big there. Uh, agriculture is big there. Um, it's, it's very much a, a boom and bust type area. And I went through several of those. My dad owned a junkyard uh, that sat right in front of the landfill um, there. And we worked with fixing broken things that we would buy from the uh, local different factories plants that all uh, service and supplied things for the mobile home industry. Later, we upgraded and got a bigger warehouse, but most of my childhood was, was, was spent working on um, working in that salvage yard, in that junkyard. And so I've seen that boom and bust of blue collar labor. 
and it's devastating. And in an area like that, the way that I always felt growing up, and again, you know, I left at 18 to go to college, is it felt like the GOP just used you. It didn't feel like they cared about you because no one, nothing ever came to our county. We never experienced any help. Nothing was ever done for us. You get on TV and all you hear about is the cities, that the cities are so bad and the inner cities and they need more money and they need better schools. And I had, would, would go to, I remember going my junior year for physics class and the teacher saying, we don't have any money for do any experiments. We don't have money for books. We're using very old books. Um, and we're good. If you can bring something from home, we'll do experiments. Otherwise we have no money for it. You know, and that's what a lot of folks experience. And so you hear about cities, 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 and you hear the GOP pandering to you. And then you just feel like the rich Democrats hate you and they hate you and they tell you to be ashamed of yourself. And if you say anything, they're going to say, you be ashamed of yourself. We're going to label you. And that's how it works nowadays is you label someone because once you label them, you dehumanize them. And then you don't even have to think about them because you've dehumanized them. And that's what a lot of, a lot of us felt about the Democratic Party is they don't even listen to us. They just label us, call us some hateful name, and then that's it. Why even talk to someone who's, who's so evil? So I understand why people took this as a pro-GOP thing because, you know, frankly, when you're hearing lyrics that say, Taxes, taxes, taxes. Well, the, the Democrats are definitely the, the party of higher taxes. You know, so, you know, tax no end. Inflation, is it is it controversial that Bidenomics is causing inflation? Not just Bidenomics. There's lots of other things uh, that Republicans have chipped in as well. Also, Republicans have increased the size of the federal government, just like Democrats have. Democrats have done more to increase the size of federal government, but GOP has done plenty of that as well. You know, so I see why these words are taken as pro-GOP, but some of the words that were taken to be the most offensive in this, and it was some of the words that I loved the most. He said, Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the obese are milk and welfare. God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. That was my, some of my favorite lines in the whole song. And, and, you know, the, this was taken to be, oh, so mean and so cruel. And why are you so hateful to people? Listen, do you not understand pride in an honest day's work? You know, my family grew up without health insurance and we never took handouts from the government. We never took assistance. Um, I was asked why we weren't on, you know, I was told, hey, you qualify for free lunches or reduced lunches or whatever it was. And my dad said, said, said no. My father said, that is meant for widows and orphans. We can work. We work. And if we can't afford it, we don't buy it. And that is the pride that I was raised with, that a lot of Americans are raised with. And so it's not about hating other people. It's about saying, hey, listen, you know, this is, and by the way, in the song, he didn't say, I believe there should be no safety net whatsoever. He says, hey, Clearly, there's some abuses happening, and we're sick of it. We're sick of seeing people that are next to us. We hardworking, blue-collar folks 
are sick of going to work and sick of seeing inflation being pushed up, sick of seeing uh, being being told we have to pay for someone to go to college to get a gender studies degree for $100,000 to go spend four years at a resort, a resort, you heard me, a resort, to go spend four years at a resort to get a grievance studies degree, and, and I'm supposed to pay for it. And we're going to raise my taxes. Every tax, every your your tax, your your tax. Every your, every time a dollar moves, it's taxed. It gets taxed at the company level, then it gets taxed by all these little things, and then it gets taxed when it comes to you. Then it gets taxed when you spend it. It's taxed over and over and over and over and over. People just talk about income taxes. There's all other types of taxes as well that are not level. Income taxes may be level, but a lot of taxes aren't. And so you see this person with pride saying, I'm doing the right thing. And you're spending more time and effort trying to help someone who is a fat person, obese person. And by the way, I know that's, that's hurtful, whatever. Listen, I'm overweight right now. I need to lose some weight. I, it would, I'd be healthier if I lost some weight. That's all there is to it. Um, but taxes ought not to pay for people to make stupid decisions. And we've got Americans that need help and some that are just suckling on the system, but, and folks are buying their votes with it. So yeah, I get it. Some of what he says in the song sounds very conservative, but what it really is, is pride. Listen, I've still got, got good friends in rural Alabama working at factories and blue collar jobs and things like that. And they love this line. Voting Democrat loving this line. Why? Because they see people that are lazy sucking on the government's tit. That's all there is to it. And so, but when you're labeled as hateful, then you get to be dismissed. And so, you know, the other thing about this song is it's about speaking freely. You know, one doesn't, you know, this, this, this hyperpolarization that you got to hate someone and, and hate everything about them and, 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 and want to see them crushed because you don't agree with everything they say. Listen, if you agree with 80% of the song, go for it. If you don't agree with this, with these couple lines, fine. The thing about free speech is you don't need to agree. You just need freedom. And I've heard some people say that when, you know, when, when uh, Anthony came out and said this um, about, you know, I, I wasn't not representing the GOP, that some people thought it was a slap in the face of the people who made him famous because it was clearly, you know, more conservative GOP type folks that made him famous. But at the same time, I, it wasn't the it wasn't the people on that stage that made him famous. It was the people, the people who feel like him. So I I was proud to hear him say, "Listen, I'm not a you can't count me as as GOP." And while clearly he has a lot of values that are very well aligned with the GOP, especially when he talks about control, controlling what you say, controlling what you do, um, that is clearly directed more at the, the Democratic Party than it is the GOP, in my opinion. But it's not to say that one is good and one is evil. It is to say, and this is what I would emphasize, that one party doesn't care about me. This is my perspective in growing up in rural Alabama. This is how I felt. One party doesn't care. They use me and the other party hates me. So, I mean, given those two, you go for the one that at least doesn't hate you. But at the end of the day, he's not being for, for or against. And so what I think this comes down to is I want to revisit 
you know, the idea of free speech, because what I think this is coming down to is, you know, what it means to be conservative, what it means to be liberal, it's, it's changing. Certain things that used to be considered liberal are now being taken up by conservatives. And so for me, it's the words conservative and liberal are becoming weird in my mind. It seems a lot more like freedom versus force. And, and it's causing people to have to rethink things and make decisions based on, on really weird things, you know, but, but context matters. So, you know, it's important to note that the political spectrum of the time of our founders is very different than today. In their era, their ideas were revolutionary. And so they leaned toward what uh, we would now consider liberal. Okay. So even things that we consider conservative today were pretty liberal by the standards of those days, which was a top down, you know, monarchies and, and totalitarian authoritative. That was the norm for, for most of human history, right? And now we're moving into this, you know, these more democratic um, modes of government and republics and things like that. Not that those were brand new, but they've been developing Western civilization. So applying modern labels of things like conservative and liberal to historical figures can be you know, a bit anachronistic, and it may not fully capture the nuances of the founders' beliefs. But I want to talk about for a few minutes, you know, foundational doctrines in free speech, because I'm going to make the point here in a moment, you'll see where I'm going, about how the lines between conservative and liberal and who is carrying what banner is changing. So first of all, the First Amendment uh, to, to the Constitution explicitly protects the freedom of speech. Now, in these foundational doctrines, there was a lot of influence from the Enlightenment. The founding fathers were heavily influenced by Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and John Locke, people who advocated for individual liberties like free speech. You look at the Federalist Papers, in those essays, people like Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, they argued for strong central government while emphasizing the importance of individual liberties, including free speech. Now, the terms conservative and liberal, they've evolved over time and can mean different things in different contexts. However, both Locke and Voltaire are generally considered to be figures of the Enlightenment who contributed to the development of liberal thought. Here's a breakdown. John Locke, typically considered the father of classical liberalism. Now, classical liberalism is a bit different than regular liberal, than modern liberalism. His classical liberalism is, this is not perfect to say this, but it's a lot more like libertarianism, maybe with a slight twinge of, of liberalism and a twinge of conservatism as well. But classical liberalism is, in today's terms, is most closely related probably to uh, libertarianism. But his ideas on government's role being the, being the protection of life, liberty, and property those have been foundational to liberal democracies. He also believed in the social contract. contract. The co his concept of the social contract between the government and the, gover and the governed is a cornerstone of, of liberal political theory. He advocated for religious tolerance. Um, he had a, a big influence on the founding fathers uh, as well. Now, Voltaire, he was about freedom of speech and religion. He is famous for his advocacy of free speech and religious tolerance. He was critical uh, of absolute monarchy and critical of organized religion, you know, aligning more with liberal skepticism of kind of unchecked authority. So, you know, you see him critical of unchecked authority. And he also had an emphasis on skepticism of traditional authority figures. And that really 
things sounds a lot like traditionally liberal values. But all of this you juxtapose with the modern left right now, which is uh, not aligned with um, a skepticism of traditional authority figures. It is blind adherence to traditional authority figures. It is do what we say, everyone do exactly what you're told. You don't have a choice. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be um, criticized. You can't have your own values. You're going to be labeled. You're going to be dismissed. We're going to try to economically punish you. We're going to try to socially punish you. You're not allowed to have your own voice. You can't have your own voice. You can't have your own freedom. We're going to, you, you can't have a say in how you're, how you're, what, what your children are exposed to. These ideas that we consider classically as liberalism have been mostly abandoned by the modern left. So, you know, free speech is con typically considered a liberal value. In the context of classical liberalism, free speech is a, is a core value. It emphasizes individual freedoms and limited government intervention. In fact, the word liberal is from the Middle English and Latin meaning of freedom or befitting the free. The Latin word liberalis is derived from Latin word, which means free. In Latin, liberalis can be translated to mean pertaining to a free person. It's about free. When you hear liberal, you should hear free, not control. It's about freedom. That's what liberal is supposed to mean. In Roman society, a liberalist education was one that was befitting a free person. It was focused on studies that were considered essential for a free citizen to be able to think, to understand. So they emphasize philosophy, history, rhetoric, being able to speak, being able to think. This conflict, this concept has influenced the modern understanding of liberal arts education, which originally was aimed to produce well-rounded individuals capable of critical thinking and decision-making. Now, obviously, if any of you are thinking, when you hear liberal arts, that is not what you think now. So the meaning has evolved. It is now about what you must believe to be accepted, to not be penalized. It's not, it's not about how to think and how to reason and putting thoughts in the public arena and letting the people decide to put their money and their decisions behind it. It's about how to not get canceled, what you must believe in order to not get canceled. So it's not about how to think and the freedom of think. It's about what to think. Modern liberal began to mean the opposite of free. And when you think about this, you know, in modern American politics, the term liberal refers to quote unquote progressive or left-leaning ideologies. You know, even in that context, free speech is supposed to be considered a liberal value. But now we have debates about its limitations, limitations of freedom. So now we're talking about li it's limiting. It's what you say gets you canceled. What you say, what you do, uh, how you say that, whether you affirm people or not, just failing to affirm someone gets you called hateful. No matter what they say, if, if, it's, if it's the chosen message, if you don't agree with it, and you have not affirmed, then you're hateful and you're labeled. And once you label someone, you, they're dehumanized, you get to dismiss them and you get to hate them and you get to wish the worst on them and you get to try to punish them. So, you know, 
it's funny. Now, I'm not saying that free speech wasn't ever valued in conservative ideologies. It was, especially when they emphasize tradition, authority, and individual liberties. But over time, it has been the liberal side of, of, the, of the population that's really driven the value and, and, and carried the banner of free speech, where now we're seeing that very, very different now. Now it's wild to see conservatives be the, the banner bearers of the probably most foundational liberal value that we've ever seen. And so when I see words like, you know, uh, that like uh, Oliver Anthony wrote, you know, they, they want to know what you think. Well, what does that mean? Big tech and with government, uh, to me, that's a reference to, you know, Facebook and the others that colluded with government to control the United, the, the, the American people you know, during elections, during the COVID crisis. Um, they want to know what you think and they've got access to it and they can work with big tech collude with the establishment, big tech, uh, government, they collude together and know what you think and influence the way you think or know what you think or know what you do. And he says, they don't know, they, they, they don't think you know, but I know that you do. Your dollar rate, S-H-I-T, it's tax and O-N because, because of the rich men north of Richmond. I see this as being a, you know, a social backlash. And, you know, while the, the left-wing media largely hated this until he said it wasn't for the GOP, then all of a sudden they, they liked them better. Um, I think it's good for the people. Now, I think that there's some concern, obviously, because it is a very, um, uh, it's, it's a message that is much more populist. It's a much more populist message, which is, concerning because with populate you know, populism it becomes very much of a us versus them mentality and that can lead to you know um some scapegoating um throwing certain groups under the bus it can lead to some authoritarian tendencies as they try to you know concentrate power in the executive branch this is uh something that biden has done a lot of and frankly uh Trump did a lot as well. He, he used a lot of power of the executive branch and really undermining, you know, checks and balances. So, you know, this is, um, I've got, you know, both sides have, have, you know, kind of taken a, a bit of this populist flag covertly of taking, you know, executive power. But ultimately the concern is that populism can sometimes lead to an oversimplification and therefore division um, of democratic norms. But at the same time, you know, when you see all these organizations working together and you see that, you know, uh, another, I, I won't talk about this today because I don't have enough time to get into it, but the government works with BlackRock and also Blackstone, their real estate, BlackRock's um, you know, real estate cousin and other firms like State Street, Vanguard and things like that to have a lot of influence over us and influence over these firms. And when you think about these firms, you know, big tech, um, military industrial complex, um, your food supply, they're huge owners and decision makers, all these, just these three firms control so much, so much of our life. Now let's move on to something a little more fun. Um, college football. I think the three biggest stories right now probably are the transfer portal that's been going on for a couple of years. That's if you've ever heard of the transfer portal, it allows players to, during certain windows during the year, it allows them to put their name in the transfer portal. And at that point, 
Um, other teams can recruit them to transfer schools. So we've had a lot of big changes in this, and that's going to factor into the next story. Uh, the other thing is, is conference realignment. We've got some, 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 a lot of colleges moving to new conferences as certain conferences really gather power and other conferences scramble to try to pick up the pieces afterwards. But the most interesting thing right now is, uh, is Deion Sanders, I think. If you're not familiar with the story, his story, this is a great story for you to know something about. It's very interesting and something you can talk about in the office. But Deion Sanders is, I mean, I hesitate to even say arguably, but uh, probably the best cornerback in NFL history. He was also a very solid baseball player, played for New York Yankees and maybe I think the Braves and maybe another um, solid baseball player as well. I'd say probably regarded as the second best two-sport athlete ever after Bo Jackson, uh, but Dion did have a longer career. Anyway, he played cornerback in the NFL, also kick returner, played a little bit of receiver. Long story short, a couple years ago, I'm going to give you a story, got into coaching, um, became an offensive coordinator for a, a Trinity Christian High School here in Texas. Um, then he moved into the FCS ranks. Now, FCS is, is, a, is, you might think of it as a half step below the main conference, right? Which usually called Division I, BCS. So FCS is kind of a half step down. And in that first year, he won his coaching debut. The next year, so that was 2020, he had a partial season, did okay. The next year, I think they won, they won maybe all but one or two games. Next year, he, you know, he wins the Eddie Robinson Coach of the Year for FCS. He gets some high-profile recruits now. Now, Jackson State, where he's coaching at that point, Jackson State, where he started in 2020 during the partial year, they're a HBCU, a historically black college and university. And they these HBCUs, they're FCS, they typically don't get highly uh, recruited athletes. In fact, they'll typically get athletes that have no stars. Now, a when we think about athletes, five-star is the highest. You typically have about 30 kids every year, depending on who's doing the ranking, about 30 kids across the country, probably 100,000 or more high school athletes, about 30 of them get a five-star ranking. So they're very highly coveted. And usually it's teams like, uh, you know, Alabama, um, Georgia, Auburn, Florida State, USC, Oklahoma. You know, these are the, the schools uh, that get most of the five-star recruits. And then you got four stars, another 250 or so of those nationwide. So, you know, less than 300 kids get a four or five star ranking, right? So getting these top, you know, 300 kids or so in the country is huge. And he was able to, before his last year at, at Jackson State, this kid, Travis Hunter, was, the, was uh, the number one or number two rated overall player in the country, depending on who he was rating, five-star athlete. He was committed to Florida State. Now, that's where Deion Sanders went. So Deion is a, uh, a alum of Florida State. He was able to get Travis Hunter, the number one player in the country, to flip his commitment from FSU to an FCS school, not just an FCS school, but an HBCU. And this just set the world on fire in, in the recruiting world because this never happens. I mean, for an HBCU to get a three-star athlete would be, would be a huge deal. And they got a five-star. Then they started getting a few four-stars. And so, you know, 
He got to the to, to the, the championship game, his conference, lost in the final, but he really leveraged his charisma and media savvy to bring a lot of attention to Jackson State and HBC football in general. Sponsorship deals, funding, donations, stadium, merchandise. I mean, he just blew up the HBC world, especially uh, Jackson State. Uh, he's also making lots of candid, very transparent and controversial statements. And then in December 2022, he accepted the job to Colorado. Now, Colorado has been struggling. They had one winning season in the last 17 years. Last year, 2022, they went 1-11. and 11. And so you know, there was a lot of uh, controversy about Dion. Could he, could he win at HBCU? Never been a head coach before. He killed it. So then, you know, could he get a major job? Well, Colorado is Division I, and they're in the Pac-12, which was the same conference at the time as USC and Oregon and UCLA and um, other schools like that. So a good conference, uh, what they call one of the Power Five conferences, one of the top five conferences in the United States. And, but Colorado was a doormat for that conference. So they're kind of barely in, the, in, in, in that, they're a doormat and a Power Five conference. And so that was considered a pretty big jump for him to go from HBCU to a Power Five conference, and especially a program in such in such disarray. Not only was the football team terrible, the basketball team had been terrible too, and that's the two biggest sports. But he cleaned house. So, I mean, he comes in the day, the day one. This is why the story is so interesting. Day one, he comes in, and he posts this on, on the internet of what he said to the team. He basically said, I'm bringing my luggage. We're bringing some dogs in here. We're bringing some amazing athletes. And if you're not on board, you might as well just go ahead and pack up. A lot of you are not going to make it. And that's not verbatim. It's basically what he said. And he cleaned house. And over the course of from August 2022 through April of next year, now a lot of that was before he got there, but they ended up losing 71 players. Now, 47 of those alone were, were, were since April 15th. So in other words, spring of this year, he was just hired in December. Now they only have 83 scholarships. So they started spring training with only 51 scholarship players. And then they had to go recruit and bring in recruits from the transfer portal. And so, you know, he got a lot of flack from this for basically cleaning house and bringing in all these brand new players to get ready to start a season in a few months. And, they sold out their spring game. They sold out their season tickets in the first time in I don't know how many years. The merchandise went through the roof. And basically the story is what's going to happen because the guy, this has never been seen before. He just came in and cleaned house. And now we go, he, the first game of the year, he starts out on the road going to Fort Worth, Texas to play TCU. Now TCU lost a lot since last year. You remember they were in the national championship game and just get absolutely throttled by Georgia in the national championship game. I think it was 65 to seven or something like that. They lost a lot, but they still were ranked number 17. I watched the game. Uh, it was amazing. Now they had uh, Shadur Sanders, which by the way, is Dion's son, who, who was recruit, who's a D one recruit, three or four star athlete, had plenty of offers. Um, decided to follow his dad to Jackson State and then follow his dad to Colorado. Shadur Sanders, 510 yards passing. That's a new Colorado record in his first game ever at Colorado. They had four players go over 100 yards in receiving in the same game. Now, last year, they had two times all last year to have any player go over 100 yards in a game. By the way, a lot of folks were uh, were bashing Dion because in 
two his 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 team's number one and number two receivers from last year both left. So he loses his number one and number two receiver, who together were only able to get two hundred yard passing games last year. And in his first game, he gets four hundred yard receivers. Amazing. So you know, Dion being his usual brash uh, self is uh you know going off on folks after the game so it was a lot of fun to watch so that's that's one of the biggest stories i think in college football this year uh anxious to watch dion and see how he does see how he handles this i'm sure he'll have some ups and downs uh but amazing story to think about also part of this story is conference realignment other thing people are gonna be talking about uh this year is conference realignment obviously the transfer portal continues to be a big deal as does the name image likeness program or also known as nil which is where players can get paid uh for sponsorships and such and but the conference realignment is going to be another big topic this year uh two years ago i believe ut and ou uh, announced that they would be joining the sec now the sec southeastern conference that is far and away the most dominant conference in uh, the united states uh, that's the conference that has alabama auburn mississippi state um, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, uh, Vanderbilt, who's the weak link, obviously, Missouri. Um, I may be missing one or two. But anyway, those two teams are being added. Well, that caused a big shakeup at the Big 12 because they were those are the two banner schools for the Big 12. Big 12, you know, is now left with probably, you know, Oklahoma State is probably the biggest name left in the, in the, in the Baylor are the biggest names left there. So the Big 12 – goes out and poaches Arizona State, Arizona, BYU, Cincinnati, University of Central Florida, Colorado, Houston, and Utah. Now, a big reason that Colorado was asked the Big 12 is because of Dion, because Dion was boosting them so much, and Dion wanted to get Colorado also in the Big 12 because, because Dion is um, not from Texas, but he's been from Texas for a number of years. You know, he played for the Dallas Cowboys. He's had a home and I believe Cedar Hill for many years. He's coached here at high school level, racing with his family here. So he's really well known in Texas. So, you know, in the Big 12, this opens him up for recruiting for Texas. So thinking about Colorado in the next few years, as now Dion is really opening up Texas to Colorado, uh, it could be interesting to see what Colorado can do. Uh, also, Big 12 got in Houston and Utah. So you know, Big 12 has really kind of done a lot to solidify themselves as possibly the second best conference in the United States. Uh, Big 10, they got Oregon coming in. The Big 10, remember, this is the schools that, you know, your um, Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio State, Northwestern, uh, Penn State, another Power Five conference. They're bringing in these coastals from the West Coast, Oregon, USC, UCLA, and Washington. So it's going to be interesting to see all these Central and then West Coast. ACC, which is, you know, your Florida State, Clemson, Wake Forest, Duke, so on and so forth. This is the Atlantic Coast. They're now bringing in California, Stanford from the East Coast, former Pac-12 schools, and SMU, Southern Methodist, out of Dallas. So now you've got the ACC that's expanding not only central in the United States, but also the West Coast and the Pac-12, who everyone rated, is currently left only with Oregon State and Washington State, the orphans looking for a new conference. Now, most of these changes, uh, some of these changes in the Big 12 happened this year. Most of the changes are happening in 2024. 
UT and OU actually aren't happening into 2025. Uh, but these are the biggest stories probably happening in college football this year. Uh, keep these up uh, up to date for your 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 conversations with your football fanatic friends. And you know, if you enjoyed this, let me know. Uh, drop me an email. Uh, give me a comment. Um, you know, if you're listening to at, on Apple or Spotify, please consider sending this to someone. If you're on um, YouTube, send it to someone. Give me a like. Give me a comment. And uh, subscribe to the channel. 